This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chekris, London, UK. The Triumphs of Eugene Valmont by Robert Barr. Chapter 8 Lady Alicia's Emeralds. Many Englishmen, if you speak to them of me, indulge themselves in a detraction that I hope they will not mind my saying is rarely graced by the delicacy of innuendo with which some of my own countrymen attempt to diminish whatever merit I may possess. Mr. Spencer Hale, of Scotland Yard, whose lack of imagination I have so often endeavoured to amend, alas, without perceptible success, was good enough to say, after I had begun these reminiscences, which he read with affected scorn, that I was wise in setting down my successors, because the life of Methuselah himself would not be long enough to chronicle my failures. And the man to whom this was said replied that it was only my artfulness, a word of which these people are very fond, that I intended to use my successors as bait, issue a small pamphlet filled with them, and then record my failures in a thousand volumes, after the plan of a Chinese encyclopaedia, selling these to the public on the instalment plan. Ah, well, it is not for me to pass comment on such observations. Every profession is marred by its little jealousies, and why should the coterie of detection be exempt? I hope I may never follow an example so deleterious, and thus be tempted to express my contempt for the stupidity with which, as all persons know, the official detective system of England is imbued. I have had my failures, of course. Did I ever pretend to be otherwise than human? But what has been the cause of these failures? They have arisen through the conservatism of the English. When there is a mystery to be solved, the average Englishman almost invariably places it in the hands of the regular police. When these good people are utterly baffled, when their big boots have crushed out all evidences that the grounds may have had to offer to a discerning mind, when their clumsy hands have obliterated the clues which are everywhere around them, I am at last called in, and if I fail, they say, what could you expect? He's a Frenchman. This was exactly what happened in the case of Lady Alicia's emeralds. For two months the regular police were not only befogged, but they blatantly sounded the alarm to every thief in Europe. All the pawnbrokers' shops of Great Britain were ransacked, as if a robber of so valuable a collection would be foolish enough to take it to a pawnbroker. Of course, the police say that they thought the thief would dismantle the cluster and sell the gems separately. As to this necklace of emeralds, possessing as it does an historical value, which is probably in excess of its intrinsic worth, what more natural than that the holder of it should open negotiations with its rightful owner, and thus make more money by quietly restoring it than by its dismemberment and sale piecemeal? But such a fuss was kicked up, such a furore created, that it is no wonder the receiver of the goods lay low and said nothing. In vain were all ports giving access to the continent watched. In vain were the police of France, Belgium and Holland warned to look out for this treasure. Two valuable months were lost, and then the Marquis of Blair sent for me. 
I maintain that the case was hopeless from the moment I took it up. It may be asked why the Marquis of Blair allowed the regular police to blunder along for two precious months, but anyone who is acquainted with that nobleman will not wonder that he clung so long to a forlorn hope. Very few members of the House of Peers are richer than Lord Blair, and still fewer more penurious. He maintained that, as he paid his taxes, he was entitled to protection from theft, that it was the duty of the government to restore the gems, and if this proved impossible, to make compensation for them. This theory is not acceptable in the English courts, and while Scotland Yard did all it could during those two months, what but failure was to be expected from its limited mental equipment? When I arrived at the manor of Blair, as his lordship's very ugly and somewhat modern mansion-house is termed, I was instantly admitted to his presence. I had been summoned from London by a letter in his lordship's own hand, on which the postage was not paid. It was late in the afternoon when I arrived, and our first conference was what might be termed futile. It was taken up entirely with haggling about terms, the Marquis endeavouring to beat down the price of my services to a sum so insignificant that it would barely have paid my expenses from London to Blair and back. Such bargaining is intensely distasteful to me. When the Marquis found all his offers declined with a politeness which left no opening for anger on his part, he endeavoured to induce me to take up the case on a commission contingent upon my recovery of the gems and as I had declined this for the twentieth time, darkness had come on, and the gong rang for dinner. I dined alone in the salle à manger, which appeared to be set apart for those calling at the mansion on business, and the meagreness of the fare, together with the indifferent nature of the claret, strengthened my determination to return to London as early as possible next morning. When the repast was finished, the dignified serving-man said gravely to me, "'The Lady Alicia asks if you will be good enough to give her a few moments in the drawing-room, sir.' I followed the man to the drawing-room, and found the young lady seated at the piano, on which she was strumming idly and absent-mindedly, but with a touch nevertheless that indicated advanced excellence in the art of music. She was not dressed as one who had just risen from the dining-table, but was somewhat grimly and commonly attired, looking more like a cottager's daughter than a member of a great country family. Her head was small, and crowned with a mass of jet-black hair. My first impression on entering the large, rather dimly lighted room was unfavourable, but that vanished instantly under the charm of a manner so graceful and vivacious that in a moment I seemed to be standing in a brilliant Parisian salon, rather than in the sombre drawing-room of an English country house. Every poise of her dainty head, every gesture of those small, perfect hands, every modulated tone of the voice, whether sparkling with laughter or caressing in confidential speech, reminded me of the grande dame of my own land. It was strange to find this perfect human flower amidst the gloomy ugliness of a huge square house built in the time of the Georges. But I remembered now that the Blairs are the English equivalent of the de Belairs of France, from which family sprang the fascinating Marquise de Belair, who adorned the court of Louis the Fourteenth. Here, advancing towards me, was the very reincarnation of the lovely Marquise, 
who gave lustre to this dull world nearly three hundred years ago. Ah, after all, what are the English but a conquered race? I often forget this, and I trust I never remind them of it, but it enables one to forgive them much. A vivid twentieth-century marquise was Lady Alicia, in all except attire. What a dream some of our Parisian dress artists could have made of her! and here she was immured in this dull English house, in a high-necked costume of a labourer's wife. "'Welcome, Monsieur Valmont,' she cried, in French of almost faultless intonation. "'I am so glad you have arrived.' And she greeted me as if I were an old friend of the family. There was nothing of condescension in her manner, no display of her own affability, while at the same time teaching me my place, and the difference in our stations in life. I can stand the rudeness of the nobility, but I detest their condescension. No, Lady Alicia was a true de Belair, and in my confusion, bending over her slender hand, I said, Madame la Marquise, it is a privilege to extend to you my most respectful salutations. She laughed at this quietly, with the melting laugh of the nightingale. Monsieur, you mistake my title. Although my uncle is a Marquis, I am but Lady Alicia. "'Your pardon, my lady. "'For the moment I was back in that scintillating court "'which surrounded Louis le Grand. "'How flatteringly you introduce yourself, monsieur. "'In the gallery upstairs there is a painting of the Marquise de Belair, "'and when I show it to you tomorrow "'you will then understand how charmingly you have pleased a vain woman "'by your reference to that beautiful lady. "'But I must not talk in this frivolous strain, monsieur. "'There is serious business to be considered.' "'and I assure you I looked forward to your coming, monsieur, "'with the eagerness of Sister Anne in the Tower of Bluebeard. "'I fear my expression as I bowed to her "'must have betrayed my gratification at hearing these words, "'so confidentially uttered by lips so sweet, "'while the glance of her lovely eyes was even more eloquent than her words. "'Instantly I felt ashamed of my chaffering over terms with her uncle. "'Instantly I forgot my resolution to depart on the morrow.' "'Instantly I resolved to be of what assistance I could to this dainty lady. "'Alas, the heart of Valmont is to-day as unprotected against the artillery of inspiring eyes "'as ever it was in his extreme youth. "'This house,' she continued vivaciously, "'has been practically in a state of siege for two months. "'I could take none of my usual walks in the gardens, on the lawns, or through the park,' without some clumsy policeman in uniform crashing his way through the bushes, or some detective in plain clothes accosting me and questioning me under the pretense that he was a stranger who had lost his way. The lack of all subtlety in our police is something deplorable. I am sure the real criminal might have passed through their hands a dozen times unmolested, while our poor innocent servants— and the strangers within our gates were made to feel that the stern eye of the law was upon them night and day. The face of the young lady was an entrancing picture of animated indignation, as she gave utterance to this truism, which her countrymen are so slow to appreciate. I experienced a glow of satisfaction. Yes, she went on, they sent down from London an army of stupid men, who have kept our household in a state of abject terror for eight long weeks, "'And where are the emeralds?' "'As she suddenly asked this question in the most Parisian of accents, "'with a little outward spreading of the hand, "'a flash of the eye and a toss of the head, 
the united effect was something indescribable through the limitations of the language I am compelled to use. Well, monsieur, your arrival has put to flight this tiresome brigade, if indeed the word flight is not too airy a term to use towards a company so elephantine, and I assure you a sigh of relief has gone up from the whole household with the exception of my uncle. I said to him at dinner tonight, if Monsieur Valmont had been induced to take an interest in the case at first, the jewels would have been in my possession long before tonight. Ah, my lady, I protested, I fear you overrate my poor ability. It is quite true that if I had been called in on the night of the robbery, my chances of success would have been infinitely greater than they are now. Monsieur, she cried, clasping her hands over her knees and leaning towards me, hypnotising me with those starry eyes. Monsieur, I am perfectly confident that before a week is past, you will restore the necklace, if such restoration be possible. I have said so from the first. Now, am I right in my conjecture, monsieur, that you come here alone, that you bring with you no train of followers and assistants? That is as you have stated it, my lady. I was sure of it. It is to be a contest of trained mentality, in opposition to our two months' experience of brute force. Never before had I felt such ambition to succeed, and a determination not to disappoint took full possession of me. Appreciation is a needed stimulant, and here it was offered to me in its most intoxicating form. Ah, Valmont, Valmont, will you never grow old? I am sure that at this moment, if I had been eighty, the same thrill of enthusiasm would have tingled to my fingers' ends. Leave the manor of Blair in the morning, not for the Bank of France. Has my uncle acquainted you with particulars of the robbery? No, madame, we were talking of other things. The lady leaned back in her low chair, partially closed her eyes and breathed a deep sigh. I can well imagine the subject of your conversation, she said at last. The Marquis of Blair was endeavouring to impose usurer's terms upon you, while you, nobly scorning such mercenary considerations, had perhaps resolved to leave us at the earliest opportunity. I assure you, my lady, that if any such conclusion had been arrived at on my part, it vanished the moment I was privileged to set foot in this drawing-room. It is kind of you to say that, monsieur. But you must not allow your conversation with my uncle to prejudice you against him. He is an old man now, and of course has his fancies. You would think him mercenary, perhaps, and so he is, but then so too am I. Oh, yes, I am, monsieur, frightfully mercenary. To be mercenary, I believe, means to be fond of money. No one is fonder of money than I, except perhaps my uncle. But you see, monsieur, we occupy the two extremes. He is fond of money to hoard it, I am fond of money to spend it. I am fond of money for the things it will buy. I should like to scatter largesse as did my fair ancestress in France. I should love a manor-house in the country and a mansion in Mayfair. I could wish to make everyone around me happy if the expenditure of money would do it. That is a form of money, love, Lady Alicia, which will find a multitude of admirers. The girl shook her head and laughed merrily. I should so dislike to forfeit your esteem, Monsieur Valmont, and therefore I shall not reveal the depth of my cupidity. You will learn that probably from my uncle, 
and then you will understand my extreme anxiety for the recovery of these jewels. Are they very valuable? Oh, yes. The necklace consists of twenty stones, no one of which weighs less than an ounce. Altogether, I believe, they amount to two thousand four hundred, or two thousand five hundred carats, and their intrinsic value is twenty pounds a carat, at least. So you see that means nearly fifty thousand pounds. Yet even this sum is trivial compared with what it involves. There is something like a million at stake, together with my coveted manor-house in the country, and my equally coveted mansion in Mayfair. All this is within my grasp if I can but recover the emeralds. The girl blushed prettily, as she noticed how intently I regarded her while she evolved this tantalising mystery. I thought there was a trace of embarrassment in her laugh when she cried, "'Oh, what will you think of me when you understand the situation? Pray, pray do not judge me harshly. I assure you the position I aim at will be used for the good of others as well as for my own pleasure.' If my uncle does not make a confidant of you, I must take my courage in both hands and give you all the particulars, but not to-night. Of course, if one is to unravel such a snarl as that in which we find ourselves, he must be made aware of every particular, must he not? Certainly, my lady. Very well, Monsieur Valmont, I shall supply any deficiencies that occur in my uncle's conversation with you. "'There is one point on which I should like to warn you. "'Both my uncle and the police have made up their minds "'that a certain young man is the culprit. "'The police found several clues "'which apparently led in his direction, "'but they were unable to find enough to justify his arrest. "'At first I could have sworn he had nothing whatever to do with the matter, "'but lately I am not so sure.' All I ask of you, until we secure another opportunity of consulting together, is to preserve an open mind. Please do not allow my uncle to prejudice you against him. What is the name of this young man? He is the Honourable John Haddon. The Honourable? Is he a person who could do so dishonourable an action? The young lady shook her head. I am almost sure he would not, and yet one never can tell. I think at the present moment there are one or two noble lords in prison, but their crimes have not been mere vulgar housebreaking. Am I to infer, Lady Alicia, that you are in possession of certain facts unknown either to your uncle or the police? Yes. Pardon me, but do these facts tend to incriminate the young man? Again the young lady leaned back in her chair and gazed past me, a wrinkle of perplexity on her fair brow, then she said very slowly, "'You will understand, Monsieur Valmont, how loath I am to speak against one who was formerly a friend. If he had been content to remain a friend, I am sure this incident which has caused us all such worry and trouble would never have happened. I do not wish to dwell on what my uncle will tell you was a very unpleasant episode, but the Honourable John Haddon is a poor man.' "'and it is quite out of the question for one brought up as I have been "'to marry into poverty. "'He was very headstrong and reckless about the matter, "'and involved my uncle in a bitter quarrel while discussing it, "'much to my chagrin and disappointment. "'It is as necessary for him to marry wealth "'as it is for me to make a good match, "'but he could not be brought to see that. "'Oh, he is not at all a sensible young man, 
and my former friendship for him has ceased. Yet I should dislike very much to take any action that might harm him. Therefore I have spoken to no one but you about the evidence that is in my hands, and this you must treat as entirely confidential, giving no hint to my uncle, who is already bitter enough against Mr. Haddon. Does this evidence convince you that he stole the necklace? No, I do not believe that he actually stole it, but I am persuaded he was an accessory after the fact. Is that the legal term? Now, Monsieur Valmont, we will say no more to-night. If I talk any longer about this crisis, I shall not sleep, and I wish, assured of your help, to attack the situation with a very clear mind to-morrow. When I retired to my room, I found that I, too, could not sleep, although I needed a clear mind to face the problem of to-morrow. It is difficult for me to describe accurately the effect this interview had upon my mind, but to use a bodily simile, I may say that it seemed as if I had indulged too freely in a subtle champagne, which appeared exceedingly excellent at first, but from which the exhilaration had now departed. No man could have been more completely under a spell than I was when Lady Alicia's eyes first told me more than her lips revealed. But although I had challenged her right to the title mercenary when she applied it to herself, I could not but confess that her nonchalant recital regarding the friend who desired to be a lover jarred upon me. I found my sympathy extending itself to that unknown young man, on whom it appeared the shadow of suspicion already rested. I was confident that if he had actually taken the emeralds, it was not at all from motives of cupidity. Indeed, that was practically shown by the fact that Scotland Yard found itself unable to trace the jewels, which at least they might have done, if the necklace had been sold either as a whole or dismembered. Of course, an emerald weighing an ounce is by no means unusual. The Hope emerald, for example, weighs six ounces, and the gem owned by the Duke of Devonshire measures two and a quarter inches through its greatest diameter. Nevertheless, such a constellation as the Blair Emeralds was not to be disposed of very easily, and I surmised no attempt had been made either to sell them or to raise money upon them. Now that I had removed myself from the glamour of her presence, I began to suspect that the young lady, after all, although undoubtedly possessing the brilliancy of her jewels, retained also something of their hardness. There had been no expression of sympathy for the discarded friend, it was too evident, recalling what had latterly passed between us, that the young woman's sole desire, and a perfectly natural desire, was to recover her missing treasure. There was something behind all this which I could not comprehend, and I resolved in the morning to question the Marquis of Blair as shrewdly as he cared to allow. Failing him, I should cross-question the niece in a somewhat drier light than that which had enshrouded me during this interesting evening. I care not who knows it, but I have been befooled more than once by a woman. But I determined that in clear daylight I should resist the hypnotising influence of those glorious eyes. Mon Dieu! Mon Dieu! How easy it is for me to make good resolutions when I am far from temptation! It was ten o'clock next morning when I was admitted to the study of the aged bachelor Marquis of Blair, his keen eyes looked through and through me as I seated myself before him. "'Well,' he said shortly. "'My lord,' I began deliberately, 
I know nothing more of the case than was furnished by the accounts I have read in the newspapers. Two months have elapsed since the robbery. Every day that passed made the detection of the criminal more difficult. I do not wish to waste either my time or your money on a forlorn hope. If, therefore, you will be good enough to place me in possession of all the facts known to you, I shall tell you at once whether or not I can take up the case.' "'Do you wish me to give you the name of the criminal?' asked his lordship. "'Is his name known to you?' I asked in return. "'Yes. John Haddon stole the necklace. "'Did you give that name to the police?' "'Yes.' "'Why didn't they arrest him?' "'Because the evidence against him is so small, "'and the improbability of his having committed the crime is so great. "'What is the evidence against him?' His lordship spoke with the dry deliberation of an aged solicitor. The robbery was committed on the night of October the 5th. All day there had been a heavy rain, and the grounds were wet. For reasons into which I do not care to enter, John Haddon was familiar with this house, and with our grounds. He was well known to my servants, and, unfortunately, popular with them, for he is an open-handed spendthrift. The estate of his elder brother, Lord Steffenham, adjoins my own to the west, and Lord Steffenham's house is three miles from where we sit. On the night of the fifth a ball was given in the mansion of Lord Steffenham, to which, of course, my niece and myself were invited, and which invitation was accepted. I had no quarrel with the elder brother. It was known to John Haddon that my niece intended to wear her necklace of emeralds. The robbery occurred at a time when most crimes of that nature are committed in country houses, namely while we were at dinner, an hour during which the servants are almost invariably in the lower part of the house. In October the days are getting short. The night was exceptionally dark, for although the rain had ceased, not a star was visible. The thief placed a ladder against the sill of one of the upper windows, opened it and came in. He must have been perfectly familiar with the house, for there are evidences that he went direct to the boudoir where the jewel-case had been carelessly left on my niece's dressing-table when she came down to dinner. It had been taken from the strong-room about an hour before. The box was locked, but of course that made no difference. The thief wrenched the lid off, breaking the lock, stole the necklace, and escaped by the way he came. Did he leave the window open and the ladder in place? Yes. "'Doesn't that strike you as very extraordinary?' "'No. I do not assert that he's a professional burglar "'who would take all the precautions against the discovery "'that might have been expected from one of the craft. "'Indeed, the man's carelessness in going straight across the country to his brother's house "'and leaving footsteps in the soft earth, "'easily traceable almost to the very boundary fence, "'shows he's incapable of any serious thought. "'Is John Haddon rich?' "'He hasn't a penny.' "'Did you go to the ball that night?' "'Yes, I had promised to go.' "'Was John Haddon there?' "'Yes, but he appeared late. "'He should have been present at the opening, "'and his brother was seriously annoyed by his absence. "'When he did come, he acted in a wild and reckless manner, "'which gave the guests the impression he'd been drinking. "'Both my niece and myself were disgusted with his actions.' "'Do you think your niece suspects him?' She certainly did not at first, and was indignant when I told her, coming home from the ball, that her jewels were undoubtedly in Steffenham House, even though they were not round her neck. But latterly I think her opinion has changed. To go back a moment, 
"'Did any of your servants see him prowling about the place?' "'They all say they didn't, but I myself saw him just before dusk, "'coming across the fields towards this house, "'and next morning we found the same footprints both going and coming. "'It seems to me the circumstantial evidence is rather strong. "'It's a pity that no one but yourself saw him. "'What more evidence are the authorities waiting for?' "'They're waiting until he attempts to dispose of the jewels.' "'You think, then, he has not done so up to date? "'I think he will never do so.' "'Then why did he steal them?' "'To prevent the marriage of my niece with Jonas Carter of Sheffield, "'to whom she is betrothed. "'They were to be married early in the new year.' Mm, "'My lord, you amaze me. "'If Mr. Carter and Lady Alicia are engaged, "'why should the theft of the jewels interfere with the ceremony?' "'Mr. Jonas Carter's a most estimable man, who, however, does not move in our sphere of life. "'He's connected with the steel or cutlery industry, and is a person of great wealth, "'rising upwards of a million, with a large estate in Derbyshire, "'and a house fronting Hyde Park in London. "'He's a very strict businessman, and both my niece and myself agree that he's also an eligible man. "'I myself am rather strict in matters of business,' "'and I must admit that Mr. Carter showed a very generous spirit "'in arranging the preliminaries of the engagement with me. "'When Alicia's father died, "'he had run through all the money he himself possessed "'or could borrow from his friends. "'Although a man of noble birth, I never liked him. "'He was married to my only sister. "'The Blair Emeralds, as perhaps you know, "'descend down the female line. "'They, therefore, came to my niece from her mother.' My poor sister had long been disillusioned before death released her from the titled scamp she had married, and she very wisely placed the emeralds in my custody to be held in trust for her daughter. They constitute my niece's only fortune, and would produce, if offered in London today, probably seventy-five or a hundred thousand pounds, although actually they're not worth so much. Mr. Jonas Carter very amiably consented to receive my niece with a dowry of only fifty thousand pounds, and that money I offered to advance if I was allowed to retain the jewels as security. This was arranged between Mr. Carter and myself. But surely Mr. Carter does not refuse to carry out his engagement because the jewels has been stolen? He does. Why should he not? Then... "'Surely you will advance the fifty thousand necessary?' "'I will not. Why should I?' "'Well, it seems to me,' said I, with a slight laugh, "'the young man has very definitely checkmated both of you.' "'He has until I have laid him by the heels, "'which I'm determined to do if he were the brother of twenty Lord Steffenhams. "'Please answer one more question. "'Are you determined to put the young man in prison? "'Or would you be content with the return of the emeralds intact?' "'Of course I should prefer to put him in prison and get the emeralds too, "'but if there's no choice in the matter, I must content myself with a necklace.' "'Very well, my lord. I will undertake the case.' "'This conference had detained us in the study till after eleven, "'and then, as it was a clear, crisp December morning, "'I went out through the gardens into the park, "'that I might walk along the well-kept private road "'and meditate upon my course of action.' or rather, think over what had been said, because I could not map my route until I had heard the secret which the Lady Alicia promised to impart. As at present instructed, 
it seemed to me the best way to go direct to the young man, show him as effectively as I could the danger in which he stood, and if possible persuade him to deliver up the necklace to me. As I strolled along under the grand old leafless trees, I suddenly heard my name called impulsively two or three times, and, turning round, saw the lady Alicia running towards me. Her cheeks were bright with nature's rouge, and her eyes sparkled more dazzlingly than any emerald that ever tempted man to wickedness. "'Oh, Monsieur Valmont, I've been waiting for you, and you escaped me. Have you seen my uncle?' "'Yes, I've been with him since ten o'clock.' "'Well?' "'Your ladyship, that is exactly the word with which he accosted me.' "'Ah, you see an additional likeness between my uncle and myself this morning, then.' "'Has he told you about Mr. Carter?' "'Yes. "'So now you understand how important it is "'that I should regain possession of my property.' "'Yes,' I said with a sigh. "'The house near Hyde Park and the great estate in Derbyshire.' "'She clapped her hands with glee, "'eyes and feet dancing in unison "'as she capered along gaily beside me, "'a sort of skippity-hop, skippity-hop, sideways, "'keeping pace with my more stately step,' "'as if she were a little girl of six, instead of a young woman of twenty. "'Not only that,' she cried, "'but one million pounds to spend. "'Oh, Monsieur Valmont, you know Paris, "'and yet you do not seem to comprehend "'what that plethora of money means. "'Well, madame, I have seen Paris, "'and I have seen a good deal of the world, "'but I am not so certain you will secure the million to spend. "'What?' she cried, stopping short, "'that little wrinkle which betokened temper appearing on her brow. "'Do you think we won't get the emeralds, then?' "'Oh, I am sure we will get the emeralds. "'I, Valmont, pledge you my word. "'But if Mr. Jonas Carter, before marriage, "'calls a halt upon the ceremony "'until your uncle places fifty thousand pounds upon the table, "'I confess I am very pessimistic "'about your obtaining control of the million afterwards.' "'all her vivacity instantaneously returned. Pooh! she cried, dancing round in front of me, "'and standing there directly in my path so that I came to a stand. Pooh! she repeated, snapping her fingers, "'with an inimitable gesture of that lovely hand. "'Monsieur Valmont, I am disappointed in you. "'You are not nearly so nice as you were last evening. "'It is very uncomplimentary in you to intimate "'that when once I am married to Mr. Jonas, "'I shall not wheedle from him all the money I want. "'Do not rest your eyes on the ground. "'Look at me and answer.' "'I glanced up at her and could not forbear laughing. "'The witchery of the wood was in that girl. "'Yes, and a perceptible trace of the Gallic devil "'flickered in those enchanting eyes of hers. "'I could not help myself. "'Ah, Madame la Marquise de Belair. "'How jauntily you would scatter despair in that susceptible court of Louis! "'Ah, Monsieur Eugène de Valmont,' she cried, mimicking my tones, "'and imitating my manner with an exactitude that amazed me. "'You are once more my dear de Valmont of last night. "'I dreamed of you, I assure you I did, "'and now to find you in the morning oh so changed!' "'She clasped her little hands and inclined her head,' while the sweet voice sank into a cadence of melancholy, which seemed so genuine that the mocking ripple of a laugh immediately following was almost a shock to me. Where had this creature of the dull English countryside 
learnt all such frou-frou of gesture and tone. "'Have you ever seen Sarah Bernhardt?' I asked. Now the average Englishwoman would have inquired the genesis of so inconsequent a question, but Lady Alicia followed the trend of my thought, and answered at once as if my query had been quite expected. "'Mais non, monsieur. Sarah the Divine. Ah, she comes with my million a year and the house of Hyde Park. No, the only inhabitant of my real world whom I have yet seen is Monsieur Valmont, and he, alas, I find so changeable.' "'But now, adieu frivolity, we must be serious.' "'And she walked sedately by my side. "'Do you know where you are going, monsieur?' "'You are going to church.' "'Oh, do not look frightened, not to a service. "'I am decorating the church with holly, "'and you shall help me and get thorns in your poor fingers.' "'The private road, which up to this time had passed through a forest, "'now reached a secluded glade.' in which stood a very small but exquisite church, evidently centuries older than the mansion we had left. Beyond it were grey stone ruins, which Lady Alicia pointed out to me as remnants of the original mansion that had been built in the reign of the second Henry. The church, it was thought, formed the private chapel to the hall, and it had been kept in repair by the various lords of the manor. "'Now hearken to the power of the poor,' "'and learn how they may flout the proud Marquis,' cried Lady Alicia gleefully. "'The poorest man in England may walk along this private road on Sunday to the church, "'and the proud Marquis is powerless to prevent him. "'Of course, if the poor man prolongs his walk, "'then he is in danger from the law of trespass. "'On weekdays, however, this is the most secluded spot on the estate.' and I regret to say that my lordly uncle does not trouble it even on Sundays. I fear we are a degenerate race, Monsieur Valmont, for doubtless a fighting and deeply religious ancestor of mine built this church, and to think that when the useful masons cemented these stones together, Madame la Marquise de Belair or Lady Alicia were alike unthought of, and though three hundred years divide them, this ancient chapel makes them seem, as one might say, contemporaries. Oh, Monsieur Valmont, what is the use of worrying about emeralds or anything else? As I look at this beautiful old church, even the house of Hyde Park appears as naught. And to my amazement, the eyes that Lady Alicia turned upon me were wet. The front door was unlocked. We walked into the church in silence. Around the pillars, "'Holly and ivy were twined. "'Great armfuls of the shrubs had been flung here and there along the walls in heaps, "'and a step-ladder stood in one of the aisles, "'showing that the decoration of the edifice was not yet complete. "'A subdued melancholy had settled down on my erstwhile vivacious companion, "'the inevitable reaction so characteristic of the artistic temperament, "'augmented doubtless by the solemnity of the place.' around whose walls in brass and marble were sculptured memorials of her ancient race. "'You promised,' I said at last, "'to tell me how you came to suspect—' "'Not here, not here,' she whispered. Then, rising from the pew in which she had seated herself, she said, "'Let us go. I am in no mood for working this morning. I shall finish the decoration in the afternoon.' We came out into the cool and brilliant sunlight again, and as we turned homeward, 
her spirits immediately began to rise. "'I am anxious to know,' I persisted, "'why you came to suspect a man whom at first you believed innocent.' "'I am not sure but I believe him innocent now, "'although I am forced to the conclusion that he knows where the treasure is. "'What forces you to that conclusion, my lady? "'A letter I received from himself, "'in which he makes a proposal so extraordinary "'that I am almost disinclined to accede to it, "'even though it leads to the discovery of my necklace. "'However, I am determined to leave no means untried "'if I receive the support of my friend.' "'Monsieur Valmont.' "'My lady,' said I, with a bow, "'it is but yours to command, mine to obey. "'What were the contents of that letter?' "'Read it,' she replied, "'taking the folded sheet from her pocket "'and handing it to me. "'She had been quite right "'in characterising the note "'as an extraordinary epistle. "'The Honourable John Haddon "'had the temerity to propose that she should go through a form of marriage with him in the old church we had just left. If she did that, he said, it would console him for the mad love he felt for her. The ceremony would have no binding force upon her whatever, and she might bring whom she pleased to perform it. If she knew no one that she could trust, he would invite an old college chum, and bring him to the church next morning at half-past seven o'clock. Even if an ordained clergyman performed the ceremony, it would not be legal unless it took place between the hours of eight in the morning and three in the afternoon. If she consented to this, the emeralds were hers once more. "'This is the proposal of a madman,' said I, as I handed back the letter. "'Well,' she replied, with a nonchalant shrug of her shoulders, "'he has always said he was madly in love with me, and I quite believe it.' "'Poor young man! "'If this mummery were to console him for the rest of his life, "'why should I not indulge him in it?' "'Lady Alicia, "'surely you would not countenance the profaning of that lovely old edifice "'with a mock ceremonial. "'No man in his senses could suggest such a thing.' "'Once more her eyes were twinkling with merriment. "'But the Honourable John Haddon, as I have told you, is not in his senses. "'Then why should you indulge him?' "'Why? How can you ask such a question?' "'Because of the emeralds. "'It is only a mad lark, after all, and no one need know of it. "'Oh, Monsieur Valmont!' she cried pleadingly, clasping her hands. "'Yet it seemed to me with an undercurrent of laughter in her beseeching tones. "'Will you not enact for us the part of clergyman? "'I am sure if your face were as serious as it is at this moment, "'the robes of a priest would become you.' "'Lady Alicia, you are incorrigible. "'I am somewhat a man of the world, "'yet I should not dare to counterfeit the sacred office, "'and I hope you but jest. "'In fact, I am sure you do, my lady.' "'She turned away from me with a very pretty pout. "'Monsieur Valmont, your knighthood is, after all, but surface deep. "'Tis not mine to command and yours to obey. "'Certainly I did but jest.' "'John shall bring his own imitation clergyman with him. "'Are you going to meet him to-morrow? "'Certainly I am. "'I have promised I must secure my necklace. "'You seem to place great confidence in the belief that he will produce it. "'If he fails to do so, then I play Monsieur Valmont as my trump card. "'But, Monsieur, 
although you quite rightly refuse to comply with my first request, you will surely not reject my second. Please meet me tomorrow at the head of the avenue, promptly at a quarter past seven, and escort me to the church. For a moment, the negative trembled on my tongue's end, but she turned those enchanting eyes upon me, and I was undone. Very well, I answered. She seized both my hands, like a little girl overjoyed at a promised excursion. Oh, Monsieur Valmont, you are a darling. I feel as if I'd known you all my life. I am sure you will never regret having humoured me. Then added a moment later, If we get the emeralds. Ah, said I, if we get the emeralds. We were now within sight of the house, and she pointed out our rendezvous for the following day, and with that, I bade her good-bye. It was shortly after seven o'clock next morning when I reached the meeting-place. The Lady Alicia was somewhat long in coming, but when she arrived her face was aglow with girlish delight at the solemn prank she was about to play. "'You have not changed your mind?' I asked, after the morning's greetings. "'Oh, no, Monsieur Valmont,' she replied with a bright laugh. "'I am determined to recover those emeralds.' "'We must hurry, Lady Alicia, or we will be too late.' "'There's plenty of time,' she remarked calmly, "'and she proved to be right, "'because when we came in sight of the church, "'the clock pointed to the hour of half-past seven. "'Now,' she said, "'I shall wait here until you steal up to the church "'and look in through one of the windows "'that do not contain stained glass. "'I should not for the world arrive before Mr. Haddon "'and his friend are there.' "'I did as requested,' and saw two young men standing together in the centre aisle, one in the full robes of a clergyman, the other in his ordinary dress, whom I took to be the Honourable John Haddon. His profile was toward me, and I must admit there was very little of the madman in his calm countenance. His was a well-cut face, clean-shaven and strikingly manly. In one of the pews was seated a woman. I learned afterwards she was Lady Alicia's maid, who had been instructed to come and go from the house by a footpath, while we had taken the longer road. I returned and escorted Lady Alicia to the church, and there was introduced to Mr. Haddon and his friend, the made-up divine. The ceremony was at once performed, and, man of the world as I profess myself to be, this enacting of private theatricals in a church grated upon me. When the maid and I were asked to sign the book as witnesses, I said, "'Surely this is carrying realism a little too far.' Mr. Haddon smiled and replied, "'I am amazed to hear a Frenchman objecting to realism going to its full length, and speaking for myself, I shall be delighted to see the autograph of the renowned Eugène Valmont.' And with that he proffered me the pen, whereupon I scrawled my signature." The maid had already signed and disappeared. The reputed clergyman bowed us out of the church, standing in the porch to see us walk up the avenue. "'Ed!' cried John Haddon. "'I'll be back within half an hour, and will attend to the clock. You won't mind waiting?' "'Not in the least, dear boy. God bless you both.' And the tremor in his voice seemed to me carrying realism one step further still. The Lady Alicia, with downcast head, hurried us on until we were within the gloom of the forest, and then, ignoring me, she turned suddenly to the young man and placed her two hands on his shoulders. "'Oh, Jack, 
Jack!' she cried. He kissed her twice on the lips. "'Jack, Monsieur Valmont insists on the emeralds.' The young man laughed. Her ladyship stood fronting him with her back towards me. Tenderly the young man unfastened something at the throat of that high-necked dress of hers. Then there was a snap, and he drew out an amazing, dazzling, shimmering sheen of green that seemed to turn the whole bleak December landscape verdant as with a touch of spring. The girl hid her rosy face against him, and over her shoulder with a smile he handed me the celebrated Blair emeralds. "'There is the treasure, Valmont,' he cried, "'on condition that you do not molest the culprit.' "'Or the accessory after the fact,' girdled Lady Alicia, in smothered tones, with a hand clasping together her high-necked dress at the throat. "'We trust to your invention, Valmont, to deliver that necklace to Uncle, with a detective story that will thrill him to his very heart.' We heard the clock strike eight. Then a second later, smaller bells chimed a quarter past, and another second after they tinkled the half-hour. "'Hello!' cried Haddon. "'Ed has attended to the clock himself. "'What a good fellow he is!' I looked at my watch. It was twenty-five minutes to nine. "'Was the ceremony genuine, then?' I asked. "'Ah, Valmont,' said the young man, patting his wife affectionately on the shoulder, "'nothing on earth can be more genuine than that ceremony was.' And the volatile Lady Alicia snuggled closer to him. End of chapter 8